Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Open up your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And just kind of a little introductory, some introductory remarks. Uh, uh, remember when we first introduced this series um, in the Gospel of Mark, um, we kind of pointed out that Mark, when he was writing his Gospel, uh, he strategically, purposefully uh, wrote it into two sections. And section one uh, was characterized, or section one is characterized by the identity of Jesus, Jesus' identity. So if you've been here, you'll know that for the past couple of weeks, or for the first eight chapters, um, Mark records Jesus healing diseases, uh, casting out demons, raising the dead, and forgiving sins. And everywhere Jesus goes, humanity... Uh, was confronted by this question, who is this man? Who is this man? Now, unfortunately, if you've been with us, you'll remember that um, only the demons up to this point have been able to identify Jesus correctly. But every time they call him out for who he is, he actually shuts them up. Now, in the second section of Mark, um, there's kind of a dramatic shift in focus um, from the person of Jesus to the work of Jesus or from the identity of Jesus to the cross of Jesus. But before Jesus or before Mark begins to write about the cross, something really important needs to happen the disciples have to first begin to know who he is before they can begin to understand what he's going to do. And this is important. I want you to listen to this because it's true for you and I. We will never accept the cross unless we're confident in the Christ. We will never accept the suffering of the cross until we're confident in the Christ. So with that in mind, Mark chapter 8 verses 31, 37 through, uh, I'm sorry, 27 through 30 becomes kind of a key intersecting point of Mark's gospel. You see, right there in those four verses is an intersection between the identity of Christ and the work of Christ. And so Mark chapter 8 and these four verses is a bridge or a between that's holding the identity of Christ and the work of Christ, and they're colliding together in this moment. In fact, many have called these four verses in Mark the watershed moment of Mark's gospel or the epicenter of Mark's gospel because everything that has happened before has been built up to this moment and then everything that will happen after flows from this moment. So today we're going to get into that moment and then drive in a little bit deeper into the second section of Mark. So with that being said, um, let's pray and then let's get to work. Amen. Father, 
We pray for uh, good seed on good soil. Uh, we pray that your word would not come back void, but that it would accomplish everything that it has been sent out to accomplish. I pray for uh, every heart, every mind in this room that receive your word with joy. And may we not just be hearers of your word, but may we also be found doing your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Christianity must have a cross, and it must have a Christ. Otherwise, it'll make no sense. You see, without Christ and his cross, there can be no glory. So today, what I want to focus on are these three essential elements that are pulled out of Mark chapter 8 and chapter 9. Christ, cross, and glory. Christ, cross, and glory. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 8. We're going to read verse 27. In fact, I'll probably read just half of this verse and pause, and then we'll jump back in and read the rest. But open up your Bibles, and we'll have it here for you on the screen. Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and we'll read through 30. Um, and it goes like this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, the name of this particular city, Caesarea Philippi, is actually homage to Philip, who is the Herod of the moment, and Caesar, who is the Caesar of Rome. So you kind of put those two together, and you have Caesarea Philippi. Now, up until now, Jesus has conducted his entire ministry in the northern region of Israel in a region called Galilee. So for the first several chapters that we have been going through the past couple of weeks, everything that he has been doing has been in the northern area of Israel known as Galilee. But now he begins to move on with his disciples to the south, setting his face toward Jerusalem. Now why is this important? This is key. For Mark, who's writing this gospel, Caesarea Philippi did not just signal a change in the geography of Jesus' ministry, but it also represented a shift in the focus of Jesus' ministry. For Jesus, heading toward Jerusalem meant heading towards the cross. For Jesus, heading towards Jerusalem meant heading towards his death. Are you with me? So let's continue to read now the rest of verse 27 through 30. It says, and, I love this, on the way. So this is a hint. This is Mark's intersection. At this moment, Jesus and his disciples are in the in-between. On his way, he, being Jesus, asked his disciples... Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
Now, it's here in the in-between where we can reflect on a deep theological question this morning. Are there any theologians in the building? Not many, amen. And I didn't mean to amen, that is a good thing. Here we go, a deep theological question. And here it is. Why did Jesus stay in Galilee for so long? What was Jesus waiting for in Galilee that would then release him to move towards Jerusalem? Well, here's the answer. Jesus was waiting for an answer that had not yet been given. Until his disciples answered the right question in the right way, Jesus would not move forward to the next stage of his ministry. So, what was the question? Well, first, there was a setup question. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? In other words, what are people saying about my identity? Now, from this setup question, I just want to make three observations. And here's the first observation. I find it interesting that it's Jesus who is initiating this conversation. Because up to this point, he's demonstrated his authority, but he's been secretive about his identity. Why ask this question now? Second observation. When Jesus refers to people, who do people say that I am? He is neither referencing his enemies, nor is he referencing his disciples. But Jesus wants to know, what are the crowds saying? Lastly, I want you to listen again to how the disciples respond to this question. Well, Jesus People are saying that you are a prophet. Some say that you are a good moral teacher. Maybe even the reincarnation of a past hero, but not the Messiah. Does this sound familiar to you today? You see, like our current culture, the crowds don't seem to mind attributing to the historical Jesus goodness and godliness. But they still refuse to confess him as God. This brings us to the question. See, that was the setup question, and now here's the question. In fact, this is the most important question ever asked in human history. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, but... Who do you say that I am? And I love this because Jesus is exchanging the people now for his disciples. He said, who do the people say I am? Now he's saying, but who do you say that I am? Jesus made it personal. He's differentiating between his followers and the crowds. Now, please hear me out. The lordship of Christ and the demands of his word will always separate those who are followers from those who are just part of the crowd. So Peter, the eager and outspoken disciple, replies, you are the Christ. Another way to say this is this. You are the one we've been waiting for. 
You are the one sent from God to restore the kingdom and establish an everlasting throne. What a remarkable confession by Peter. Now, it's from this confession where you and I can draw three vital conclusions about our faith, three vital observations about our faith. First of all, number one, if you're taking notes, apart from grace, you and I could never see Jesus. Apart from grace, you and I could never see Jesus. You see, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus responds to Peter's confession by saying this, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed that to you. The only way that you can see me for who I really am is if my Father has told you who I am, if he has revealed it to you. This is key. Because the natural man is unable to discern spiritual things, he will always attempt to explain away what is supernaturally right in front of his eyes. But if his eyes are opened to the gospel, if his mind begins to comprehend its glory, and if his heart becomes transformed by its beauty, it's only because of the grace of God. So no man can boast. In the kingdom of God, there's not a caste system. Just because I preach on a Sunday doesn't make me any higher than anybody else. Unfortunately, we have an idol problem in humanity. We tend to lift people up a little higher than they should be, which is why when we're wounded by people, we allow them to wound us too much because we put them too high. See, we have an idolatry problem. We have a tendency to place people and men on pedestals. But the grace of God says this, that we are all sinners in need of a Savior and in desperate need of God to open our eyes to see Jesus. There's nothing you did to see Jesus. None of your works. You're not good now. You're not a better person. Well, I did these things, so therefore I'm better than these people. Nobody in this room is better than anyone else. We are all sinners. So therefore, how does that change the way you minister to people? How does that change the way you look at people that don't have the same skin color as you? How does it change the way that we minister and partner with other churches? Apart from grace, you and I would never see Jesus. Number two, therefore, Guess what? Secondhand opinion about Jesus is not good enough. Listen, especially young people in this room, and especially those of you who have been born and raised in church, we thank, and I say we because I'm a part of that, we thank our parents and our grandparents for instilling inside of us the value of the things of God. But we will be held accountable to Jesus, not based off of our parents or our grandparents' salvation. We will be held accountable to Jesus, not based off our parents or grandparents' church attendance. 
and contrary to what our culture thinks, we will be held accountable to Jesus, not based on even the prayers of our grandma. We will be held accountable to Christ based on what we did with the revelation of him. Amen? Number three, finally, you'll never go where Jesus has called you to go. And you'll never do what Jesus has called you to do until you're for sure about who he is in your life. If this was true for the apostles, it's so true for you and I. Now, listen, now that Jesus' true identity has been confessed by the disciples, he was ready to begin revealing where he was about to go and what he was about to do. Do you see why this is an intersection moment? Jesus can't start telling his disciples more about what he's about to do until they're first sure about who he is. Let's go back into our Bibles and continue to read Mark chapter 8, 31 through 38. It reads like this. And he, this is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must, what? Suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be what? Killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this. What did he, how did he say it? He said it plainly. Maybe some of your Bibles have a different translation. But the idea here is he said this openly, honestly, bluntly. It's so crazy because he's been speaking in parables which had made things kind of vague. But when he came to his suffering and his death, he spoke what? Plainly. And Peter, poor Peter, can we all just get ready for poor Peter? And some of y'all are going to be like, man, I am Peter. Hashtag, you are Peter. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Unbelievable. This bears repeating, unless you know the Christ, you'll never accept the cross. Yet even after Peter's confession, the idea of the cross still remained too difficult for him to embrace. Did you catch that? And honestly, none of us can blame him. Think about it. What hero, what victorious conqueror declares, I must suffer, I must be murdered, and I must die? 
a suffering Messiah did not fit Peter's paradigm. So you know what Peter did? Peter had a great idea. Peter, thinking he was helping, pulled Jesus to the side. Wait, hold up, Jesus. Look, let me, let's talk for a little bit. Like a, a, like a parent getting ready to scold the child. He pulls Jesus to the side. And you know what he does? He rebukes God. Like, this can't be good. Yet, Peter's failure is to our benefit. Because we can extract three powerful truths out of Peter's very difficult moments. Truth number one, very obvious. Jesus rebukes Peter. Now, can I just say, I'm so thankful for Peter. Amen? I'm so thankful that Peter... When he was relaying the stories of Jesus' life to Mark, for Mark to write this gospel, that he was humble enough to include even his most embarrassing moments to the world. I love the Christian scriptures because the men who wrote these scriptures are so full of embarrassing and sinful things. I know some people disqualify Christianity because they say it was built on sinful men. I say praise God for this Christianity because it does not worship sinful man, but it says only one was perfect. And so we read the scriptures that are full of empowerment and truth, but are also full of people like David who murdered and committed adultery. I'm so thankful, Peter. Didn't say, let's skip that moment, please, Mark. Mark, I'm not going to tell you about this story. <laughs> this is embarrassing. Like, let's stay with the hero story. Like, I confess Jesus. Y'all remember that? I said he was the Christ. But then he followed up by saying, and then Jesus rebuked me and essentially called me Satan. <laughs> now, two interesting notes here. First, Peter is an insider, y'all. He's an insider. Remember that? We talked about outsiders and insiders. Peter is an insider. Not because he fully comprehends Christ, but because he confesses Christ, he trusts Christ, and is still willing to follow Christ even in things he doesn't understand. And second, this is a reminder to stay vigilant. This is for a few of you this morning. Are you ready for this? This is about as prophetic as it's going to get. This morning, here it is. Sometimes satanic temptation comes to us, not in the form of our enemies, but in the form of our good friends giving us worldly advice and not godly counsel. Man, that's hard. That's hard. That's hard. Yeah? That's somebody? Come on. That's somebody right now. You getting some advice? You get some advice from a person that you trust and you love, but behind that advice is a worldly aspiration. Behind that advice is something you that's pulling you further away from the demands of Scripture on your life. And although you love this person and they're close to you, it doesn't mean that Satan can't use them to give you worldly advice but not godly counsel. Amen? So thank God for Peter's rebuke. Number two. In the rebuke, Jesus reveals Satan. And although calling out Satan and Peter seems like it seems harsh, yet the truth is 
Satan was motivating Peter's thinking. Now, can we go back for a moment? Some of you may remember this story. Some of you don't know this story, and that's okay. We're all one in Christ. Amen. But let me just bring you back. Do you remember the temptations of Jesus? Do you remember in the very beginning when he was baptized, and after his baptism, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? And do you remember the temptations that came at Jesus? Do you remember there was one particular temptation where Jesus was taken up to a high cliff and he overlooked all the kingdoms of the earth and Satan said, you can have these kingdoms if you just bow to me. All these kingdoms are yours. Do you remember that? I want us to go back to the moment when Satan tempted Jesus by offering all the kingdoms of the earth without the necessity to die. Jesus discerned that behind Peter's rebuke was Satan's temptation for Christ to sidestep the cross. So when Jesus says the Christ must suffer and die, and Jesus says, no, I rebuke that, Jesus. You won't die. I won't let you die. He has to say, get behind me, Satan, because in that comment is a temptation for Jesus to sidestep the cross. This leads us to a third truth. Peter's embarrassment <laughs> becomes the perfect opportunity for Jesus to teach discipleship. And since... Gospel-centered discipleship is the reason why Inspired Church exists. We must pay full attention to this lesson. Want to know something? No man is greater than his master. If the Messiah is called to the cross, then his followers are called to the cross too. No man, I knew I wasn't getting a lot of claps on that, and that's okay. I respect that. No man is greater than his master. If the Messiah is called to the cross, then his followers are called to the cross too. This is Christian discipleship summarized. For if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now listen. If Christ avoiding the cross was a satanic-inspired thought, then cross-avoiding discipleship is satanic in nature too. And I have to be honest this morning. There are too many Christian books in Christian bookstores selling our best life and avoiding the cross life. And some of you are reading them. There are too many Christian pastors and churches giving their congregations steady diets of cross-avoiding, money-accumulating, therapeutic gospel. But if you want to be sure you're being discipled in the way Jesus discipled, look for these essential elements to be regularly taught and displayed in your life and in the lives of people who are teaching it to you. Are you ready? Three, self-denying, cross-carrying, Jesus-following. Self-denying, cross-carrying, Jesus-following. Let me break that down for you. 
Number one, self-denying. What does that mean? As sinners, and I've already made it plain to you, we are all sinners. So we can all in here just put ourselves in this category. As sinners, are you ready for this? We cannot help but be self-absorbed. So we build a lifestyle that places me at the center of my world. I make my own rules. I do what feels good. And I don't have to be accountable to anyone. I covet things I don't have. I crave things I don't need. I lie. I cheat. I spend. Because it's all about me. Sin causes me to take the position that only belongs to God. Discipleship (laughs) that includes a self-denial is a discipleship that causes us to, watch, dethrone the idol of self and replace self with Christ in my heart. And so self-denying is an essential element of discipleship. Another one is cross-carrying. And let me just say a couple of things about cross-carrying. Because we live a relatively safe life, right? We live in a relatively safe environment. And I get it. For some of us, it's not as safe for others. You can't even, I won't go there, but relatively safe compared to other places. We can pick up the phone and call 911, right, babe? I passed out a couple of weeks ago, and she called, and the ambulance will show up. The police will show up. We have in the United States relative safety. But because we live in a relatively safe life, this element of cross-carrying is difficult for us to understand and imagine. Why? Because carrying your cross, you know, it, it does refer to you having to die to some things in your lives. But make no mistake about it. When Jesus made this comment and when those around him were hearing him, they knew he was referring to the very real possibility of being tortured and killed For the sake of their faith. Sometimes when I think about the call of being a pastor, when young men approach me excited about the call of being a pastor, there's a part of me that's excited. And then there's a part of me that begins to think, I wonder if we would be just as excited about this call if we were filling it during the time of Christ and the New Testament Because leading a church, even now in China, uh, in some places in the Middle East, in other areas, um, leading a pastor pretty much means that you are marked for death. To say yes to the call of the pastor didn't mean that on Sunday morning you get to stand on a cool stage with a cool groovy carpet with a bunch of people showing up, looking at you and applauding you and telling you how good of a message that was. Being called to be a pastor or a leader in the New Testament Christian church almost certainly meant death. I wonder how that would filter out the calling, even in my own life. How much more so in the comforts of our American Christianity is it hard for us to really understand what cross-bearing meant? And it also meant shame. 
It also meant shame because anybody who understood what the cross meant during that time, that, that's where criminals go to die. That's where the worst of the worst go to die. They're stripped naked and hung in front of everybody. They are shamed because of the things that they have done. To carry your cross didn't just mean torture and suffering and death, but it meant shame. And what Jesus is saying, are you ready to be killed? Are you ready to suffer? And are you really ready to feel the rejection and shame that comes with saying, I belong to Jesus? Yet some of us can't even talk about him at work. Now, I get it. Some of us, it's hard to do it because we're learning how to do it. I just want to be honest and fair. Some of us at school, we can't talk about him because we're learning how to. We don't want to say the wrong things, and I respect that. But then there are also some of us, we're not talking about Christ because somewhere in the back of our mind, we're a little concerned and fearful about the cultural rejection that we will receive. And I get that too, and I understand that pressure, but I want you to know that cross-bearing discipleship means that I'm going to challenge you, spur you on, and encourage you in the love of Jesus, and try not to stay petty because, you know, Philip can be petty officer Philip sometimes. I'm going to try to say, hey, look, Jesus must mean everything to you, even if it means being rejected and abandoned and shamed in culture. Right? Hear me out. Some of us are learning. I think all of us are learning. I go through times where I'm afraid to speak. I experience that. But as people following God, loving Jesus, and knowing the beauty of his gospel, at some point we should feel a breakthrough in that. And there should be a joy, even if we receive shame, to be able to say that I am a follower of Christ. Can you feel that warfare inside of me a little bit? I, I want to be careful. Cross-denying, self-denying, cross-carrying, and finally, number three, Jesus-following. This is what disciples do, amen? They turn from self-idolatry. They accept the shame and suffering that comes with being a Christian. And then they maintain a continual relationship with Jesus through his word. Here we go. If you're going to follow the unexpected king, then you're going to have to endure the unexpected road to glory. Now, after seeing this hard rebuke, after receiving Peter, this hard rebuke, <laughs> and upon hearing that the Messiah must suffer and die, <laughs> I can only imagine that Peter, John, and James, and the rest of the disciples needed something to lift their hearts up. They needed some encouragement. Amen. They needed something for the journey ahead because you just hit us with a bomb. And so let us continue to read in chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 2 through 13. It reads like this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. I just want to pause right there. What Mark is saying, after six days. So this is six days from the event of the confession and the rebuke. Six days later. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus and Peter said to Jesus, oh, God, Peter, don't do it. Every time I'm reading, it's like, Peter, just don't talk. 
Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Yes, Peter, it's good you're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, there's some of you in this room, when you're terrified, you say nothing. There's some of you, when you're terrified, you say too much. That's Peter. Isn't it crazy? So Peter says all that, and then Peter's telling Mark, by the way, I didn't know what to say because I was terrified. Mark's probably thinking, why'd you say it? <laughs> and a cloud overshadowed them. <laughs> Gosh, talk about scary. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he, being Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had arisen from the dead. So they kept, they kept the matters to themselves, questioning what is this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked Jesus, they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, when Jesus is referring to Elijah coming, obviously Elijah is there in that moment, but he's referring to John the Baptist, who actually fulfills the prophecy that Elijah gives of a forerunner that's coming to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the sons. And the hearts of the sons back to the fathers. Now, let me just say this. If you're a theologian in this room, it's impossible for me to unpack this extraordinary event with the few moments that we have left today. So here's what I want to do. We've talked about the Christ. We've talked about his cross. And now I want to talk about his glory and I want to talk about three aspects of his glory, and then we'll finish. The glory in his appearance, the glory in his greatness, and again, the glory in his cross. The glory in his appearance. Mark tells us Jesus was transfigured. Do you see that word? The Greek word used there is Jesus was metamorpho, where we get metamorphosis or literally transformed in appearance this is incredible because just for a brief moment Jesus permitted Peter James and John to see him in the glory that he had before the earth began so Peter limited by language tries to describe this moment years later to Mark, and he says, no detergent could have gotten his clothes that white. No bleach on earth could have done what I saw that day. Now watch. The radiance being described by Peter was not shining upon Jesus, but it was shining from within Jesus. And that glory that radiated from within him could not be contained in that moment. Literally, what Peter, James, and John were seeing was the glory of Christ shining so brightly that no clothing could cover it. 
It was, some scriptures say in the other gospels, it was blinding what they were seeing. Now, I want you to see this. Peter, who had said it, you are the Christ, now gets to see it. His confession is now confirmed in the metamorpho of Jesus. What a beautiful opportunity for Peter, who has just probably been lambasted this whole time. He gets to see the glory and the glimpse of that glory in Christ. Now, something else happens. If that wasn't awe-inspiring enough, Elijah and Moses appear right in front of their eyes, right? I mean, this is getting a little freaky, right? It's getting a little scary now, a little frightening. Jesus is really bright. We're kind of blinded. This is kind of scary, but it's awe-inspiring. But all of a sudden, we're seeing dead people now. But there's a theological significance to this meeting. You see, if you remember, Moses in the Old Testament is the giver of the law, while Elijah represents the prophets. In the law and in the prophets, the entire Old Testament resides. The Old Testament is made up of the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus fulfilled all of Scripture. He perfectly kept the law, and he was the sum of everything the prophets spoke of and looked forward to. So when Peter decides to build three tents, God bless Peter, bless his heart. <laughs> he wants to build these tents to commemorate this amazing moment. And he wants to build three tents as if Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are somehow all on this same level. But I love the father who consumes them with a glory cloud. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, Jesus is greater than both the law and the prophets because he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I'm going to finish here with the glory of his cross. Although Mark does not tell us what Jesus and Elijah and Moses were discussing. I mean, how cool would that have been, right? Can you imagine that? You see Jesus, you see Moses, and you see Elijah. I mean, what are they talking about? Now, although Mark, for some reason, determines not to tell us, Luke, thank God for Luke, does tell us what they were talking about. In fact, Luke chapter 9, verse 30 says this, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. You ready for this? And spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish where? In Jerusalem. What is he talking about, y'all? He's talking about the cross. Amazing. They were talking about the cross. Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about the cross. Now, this is deep. In order to, are you ready? Encourage Jesus in his humanity, Jesus needed to talk his death out with those who understood. Wow. And I love this. So Moses and Elijah 
are not only there to confirm Christ's glory to his disciples. You know, <laughs> Peter, James, and John are sitting there saying, my gosh, this is amazing. Moses and Elijah and this radiant light. See, this is taking place. Moses and Elijah are there not only confirming Christ's glory to his disciples, but let me tell you what. They're also there to confirm the glory of the cross to Christ. Now, I, was, I, I, I battled with these statements theologically because I don't want to paint this picture of a scared Jesus that needed encouragement, right? So in his humanity, I didn't want to lower his divinity because he was perfectly both. And if we mess with either one, we mess with this theology, and some of it's a mystery and some of it's difficult to understand that he was 100% man and 100% God. But all I know is in that moment, Elijah and Moses and Jesus are having a discussion and they're talking about the cross. Now, here's what I love. While ultimately Elijah and Moses disappeared Jesus remained why he came back down the mountain <laughs> Jesus could have stepped back into heaven with Elijah and Moses he could have avoided the cross he could have avoided the suffering he could have avoided the rejection and the shame that was about to come with it but instead Jesus came back down with his disciples all the way to Calvary voluntarily he knew his father's will and he knew your salvation and he knew his glory would be secured by way of the cross And I'm going to pray, and we're finishing right here. But will you listen to Peter and John years later writing and reflecting back on this moment? John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father full of grace and truth and Peter years later thinking about that embarrassing moment looks beyond the moment and thinks about the glory of Christ and he says in 2nd Peter chapter 1 verse 16 for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. And this is just a foretaste for every Christian that will pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow Jesus. For every Christian that will be rejected and despised, abandoned, and shamed because they have put their faith and hope and trust in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a foretaste. The glory that Christ has. The glory that Peter, John, and James were able to see. You and I will one day see that glory. 
We'll see that glory. And then we'll be transformed and transfigured. And we will share in his glory. Share in his glory. Look, I want to preach the gospel uh, before we conclude. And I want to say this. Even if you've been gut punched the last two weeks. <laughs> even if you've been, man, you've taken a couple of blows and you're kind of sitting there and, and the word of God is just cutting. I don't want you to leave this place burdened with legalism. Amen? I don't want you to leave this place burdened that I have to do, 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 and, and behave, behave, behave. I think the ultimate goal here is to receive the cut of the word. Amen? But move forward, not because you're trying to be better, but move forward just because you're compelled by the beauty and the love of Jesus. Because I want to tell you something. There's nothing you can do. Christ has already done it. He's already done it. And now we, we follow him. And, and then you say, well, well, don't we have to deny ourselves, Phil? And, don't, and this kind of feels like a, which is it? I'm going to tell you something. It's, it's neither legalism and works, but it's not license or irreligion neither. We just have to put things in its proper place. And all I'm trying to say to you is this, is that we don't move until we're certain about the beauty and the glory of Jesus and what he's done in our lives. And then out of love, we're compelled to move. And these difficult roads, these paths of suffering, these cross-bearing paths, all of, a, all of a sudden become our pleasure because the master and his love for us is so perfect and so pure. And so, Heavenly Father, I just pray over this community. I just pray over everyone in this room we would receive the word we'd be hearers of the word and doers of the word but that we would understand that our salvation is not based on anything we can do but it's based on everything that you've done Jesus and so as we fall in love with you may we fall in love with the road that you walk on even though with our human eyes with our flesh that road doesn't look beautiful whatsoever but as we begin to see it in the spirit we understand that that's a beautiful road we'll gladly follow you because we trust you and we love you and so I just pray Lord a blessing upon everyone in this building every heart and mind a blessing upon inspire church as we seek to disciple and a blessing upon every faithful gospel centered church in this region Lord, may we see our cities and may we see the Bay Area transform for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you guys. Next week, Pastor Roger will bring in a word from Mark. We'll hope to see you there. You're welcome to join us in prayer on Tuesday. We love you. Have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Inspire Churches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link.